Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party, and today we're going to be discussing the recent events in Cuba. Throughout July, huge protests rocked Cuba that really haven't been seen since the 1990s. Young people, workers pouring onto the streets, angered by rising prices, lack of food, lack of medical materials, but also angered about increasing American influence. The dollar stores were ramshackled and raided. The situation in Cuba always raises important questions for socialists. We're going to be looking at what has happened in the last few weeks and months and why these protests have escalated at this particular time. When originally Cuba dealt with the COVID pandemic fairly well, why has it seen a new spark in crisis, both in terms of COVID, but also economically? What are the nature of the forces involved with the protests and also counter-protests? Is there any US involvement? Is there a threat of counter-revolution in Cuba? And what does that mean for the Cuban working class and poor? And we're going to also discuss, really, going back into time a bit, into the history of Cuba, what took place in the revolution of 1958 and 59? What took place since then? Was Cuba ever socialist? What was the nature of the Cuban leadership and bureaucracy and why did it develop in the way it did? And really, most importantly, what programme the socialists today, as part of the Committee for Workers International, do we put forward in terms of defending the gains of the Cuban revolution, but also pushing further forward to fight for the full socialist revolution of Cuba and both Cuba, Latin America and internationally as well. So it's a really good discussion with Tony today and I hope you enjoy it loads. Hello, my name is Lenny Shea and welcome to Socials and the podcast from the Socialist Party. Today I'm with Tony Sornwell, Secretary of the Committee for Workers International, which is the international organisation the Socialist Party is part of, to discuss the recent developments in Cuba, where in July we saw some of the largest protests since the 1990s against the Cuban government. Obviously, significant development for socialists, the nature of Cuba and what the revolution of 1959 represented and what took place since then is an important issue for socialists today. And we in the CBY have consistently defended the conquest made by the revolution in 59. But at the same time, we've always been critical of the bureaucratic top-down methods that Castro has ruled over and the absence of genuine workers' democracy and democratic worth control and management of what is still a nationalised economy that has provided significant gains for the working class. But over recent years, unfortunately, many of those gains have been eroded, particularly over the last decade, and really lies behind some of these protests. But really today we want to sort of delve into what lies behind these current protests. What are the nature of the forces involved, both protesting but also the counter-protests? And what programme do really socialists put forward in terms of the future, defending both the gains of the Cuban revolution, but advancing it in the interests of the Cuban working class and poor, and also the international significance of it. But I think maybe just to start, Tony, what's been happening in recent weeks, really, throughout July in Cuba? Well, I think what you saw, Lenny, is a very significant development. Well, you saw coming out onto the streets, thousands of people, you can't say exactly how many, it's a few thousand in most cities, protesting against the shortages which are existing and also protesting against the effect of the coronavirus itself, which maybe we can discuss a little later. Now, those protests were probably the largest that have taken place, as you say, since the 1990s, when in 1994 there was an outpouring of protests that took place 
because of the shortages that followed, the collapse of the former Soviet Union, which had a devastating effect on the Cuban economy. Its GDP contracted by 30% in that period, causing havoc in relation to the Cuban economy, and it triggered a wave of protests. Now, in that wave of protests, it was quite significant. Fidel Castro, who was alive at the time, and of course the leader, General Secretary of the Communist Party, the President of the country, he went and met the protesters and had an enormous authority, as did all of the leaders, particularly Castro and Che Guevara, in the eyes of the Cuban masses because they carried out the revolution. Now, this time, based on those encounters, Castro promises some reforms, some changes, some of which were introduced, some of which were not, to try and manage and stabilise the situation, which he succeeded in doing, and the regime succeeded in doing that for a period. Now we see the outpouring of a new round of protests because of the chronic shortages which uh, have broken out of food, of medicines, of the ability to purchase goods, where the economy in the last year has contracted by 13%, but it's had a devastating effect. And really from this, we've seen some layers denouncing the protests as just being counter-revolutionaries, inspired by the Cuban exiles in Miami. And there probably is a grain of truth in that, that some of those forces were undoubtedly involved. There was some counter-revolutionary elements there. But there was also a large number of genuine people that were simply protesting and expressing their grievances and dissatisfaction with the situation that take place. Now, this is highly significant because the new Cuban regime, you've seen for the first time there's no Castro, none of the Castro brothers in the government. There's been a transition to a new generation headed now by the president, Miguel Diaz Canel, but they don't have the same authority and the same credibility. And it's against the background of an economic crisis and an erosion of the authority of the Cuban regime itself in the eyes of big sections of the population. And from this, the threat is undoubtedly posed that the movement could morph into some form of capitalist restoration. And from that point of view, there's all sorts of issues arise from that in terms of how that can be avoided if it's likely, and what international repercussions it would have. So it's very significant developments which took place in July. It's interesting, yeah, I think, just, just again, another thing I remember reading about some of the nature of the protests is, yeah, while there was clearly, I mean, it was being whipped up from America, wasn't it? And you've had the American try and involve using the internet, but I think one of the first things they went to trash during some of the writing was the dollar stores, remnants of America. So it shows all sorts of aspects involved in some of the process. And like you say, Tony, like there's probably good people on both sides, both trying to defend, fearful of counter-revolution. No doubt there's also people representative of the regime involved with that, but also genuine people wanting to fight for change, really. You're seeing the erosion of all those gains. I mean, you touched on there the aspects related to the backdrop of COVID-19. I mean, initially, Cuba did fairly well in trying to deal with it, but that hasn't really carried on. No, well, that's a very important point in terms of dealing with this, the current situation. And you mentioned there, Lenny, about the dollar stores. And of course, that is an attack probably representing a sort of anti-American sentiment exists. But it also goes a little bit further because what it also represents is a big resentment against the double currency position they've had, where you've had some have been paid in dollars, some they've had the convertible Cuban peso there as well. And that having the two currencies or the convertible currency and the non-convertible peso in existence has been an incredible source of inequality and it's really aggravated inequality and a big layer of the population have paid a very heavy price just three million workers in cuba 
who were paid in Cuban pesos, which is disastrous for them in terms of the living standards. And there's another factor in the economic crisis. They're now gripped by inflation as well, which has taken off, which is you know, a major source of a threat, particularly to a planned economy, as Trotsky described it. It's the potential for the syphilis of a planned economy, of the effect that it can have. Now, with the COVID crisis, everything, all of the underlying contradictions, as elsewhere, have been enormously accelerated. And now you have a twist in the situation, because it's true that the Cubans at the outbreak managed the COVID crisis very well, partly because of the number of doctors they had, the way they were able to mobilise the national health system that they have in Cuba as well. They had an effective lockdown, and they managed it very well. There were very few deaths in the initial period. That has now been completely transformed. And the tipping point was November last year, was when they opened up the tourism and allowed the flights to come in from Florida. So not only do we have the Cuban exiles wanting to bring in capitalism back into Cuba, they brought back COVID into Cuba and it's let rip now because of the delta that they're in. And now, as the reports coming out today indicate, it's had a catastrophic effect. It's rocketed all over the country. The Cuban health system is now a breaking point because of lack of resources, as people going into the hospital with COVID, they have absolutely no medicine now to treat them. And as one of the doctors quite heroically spoke out, criticising the regime, said in effect people are just going into hospitals to die, not to be cured. Now that is a potentially disastrous position from the point of view of the Cuban economy, because if there was one legacy that was still being maintained of the Cuban revolution, it was the health system. And if that's breaking point now, it's going to have major repercussions in terms of the legitimacy of the regime. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, obviously, some of the aspects of that, are obviously, the effects of being an isolated state, there's obviously a huge advancement for the working class, despite the bureaucracy and its isolation. And, of course, for a period of time after the revolution, it relied upon the Soviet Union. In the recent period, it relied heavily on like Venezuela, which, obviously, with the weakening of the regime there with Chavez, which... They never really developed that international relationship and really try and spread that revolution, which has left it isolated. And of course, for a period of time, you touched on it there about the leadership, is that probably in the eyes of many workers as well, is they've been doing deals now with America for a period of time under Obama, which of course Trump went back on. And I mean, there was some that thought Biden would return back to the Obama sort of relationship to Cuba, which hasn't happened. And so it's even more isolated. Is there a threat of counter-revolution? There is. I mean, it's a serious threat and it's a question of how you deal with that because what the Americans have done under Biden is they've not only carried on with Trump's sanctions, they've actually intensified them and ratcheted it up. And their attitude now is to try and just strangle the Cuban regime on the basis of starving it out of existence and provoking upheavals. And, of course, they have no interest in the real consequences of that policy for the Cuban people. Now, the economic position, we have to emphasise this, we would defend all of the gains of the Cuban Revolution, but the economic position has undoubtedly been worsened by the US embargo, which was first of all introduced in 1962, I think it was. But nevertheless, it's been tightened recently, and that has had a devastating effect. But it'd be wrong to say that that's the only cause of the problems that face the Cuban economy. It's also linked with the bureaucratization, the mismanagement of that, and the failure to have a coherent policy to spread the revolution internationally. Although we have to say, and this is an important point, that at the time of the revolution, it was at its height. There was an incredible spirit of internationalism 
during the course of the Cuban Revolution. Che Guevara in particular emphasised that. If any of our listeners can get hold of a copy of the Second Declaration of Havana, it is an incredible document and indicates how far the revolution went. And really it was an appeal for the revolution against imperialism to be carried through throughout the entire continent. The internationalism, in its own way, was reflected by what the Cubans did. I mean, it was incredible, really, how they dispatched armed forces to Africa to assist in the struggle against the apartheid regime. And actually, it was the Cuban armed forces. They were the only state that intervened militarily that actually fought the South African army to a standstill at one point. And that was a certain spirit of internationalism was there. But the tragedy was, it was not accompanied by an understanding of which force would carry out the revolution. And even that was Che Guevara's Achilles heel, really. He wanted to spread the revolution, but imagined it would be possible to do it on the basis of building guerrilla armies, which is why he went into Libya on an ill-fated mission there, to a country which had an incredible, rich tradition of struggle by the industrial working class, where the Trotskyists had a very powerful base, particularly amongst the tin miners. You know, there's an example given in the 1950s where there was a Soviet bureaucrat visited the tin mines for some trade agreement, and all of the miners came out of the mines with their helmets on, but with a red flag attached to the helmets with the signs of the 4th International on it as a form of protest against the Soviet bureaucracy. It had an incredible tradition, but unfortunately, rather than go to those layers, Guevara went to the most isolated rural area to try and build a peasant army. And, of course, he was killed. And that was the mistake. Now, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of the Cuban regime and its failure to spread the revolution is what it did elsewhere. Because Cuba could have broken its isolation on the basis of a successful revolution. A whole series of countries in Latin America, particularly in the 1970s, but even before that as well, but particularly in the 1970s, you had revolutionary waves sweeping the continent. You had Chile with the revolutionary movement. And, unfortunately, what was the advice of Castro? Go to Santiago, solidarity with the Chilean workers' movement, with the Allende government, presented Allende with a machine gun, but then advised him not to go too fast to provoke reaction. And they did the same thing with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And, you know, in a sense, they paid the price by enforcing their own isolation as those revolutionary movements in one way or another were defeated. And it was a reflection of the false policies that they had of a failure to understand how the socialist revolution could be carried out and which class would be able to do it. So as the revolution had unfolded and developed, they were drawn into the ranks of the Soviet Union and the Stalinist bureaucracy there. And increasingly acted really as representatives of Moscow in the sense of trying to act as a lever to hold back the revolution in Latin America. And in that way, they pay a price because it reinforced their own isolation. Fascinating. I never knew that about this stuff in Chile. I mean, it's really interesting, Todd. But I mean, the reason why really they had that perspective really goes back to the start as well, that unfortunately, although it was an enormous step forward for the workers in poorer Cuba, from its very starting point, it was never a workers' revolution. I mean, it was a successful revolution, nevertheless. But why was that? And what were there many mistakes there that could have been amended at the time? Well, it was particular factors that, you know, a number of factors came together. You'd had a very difficult period of struggle. The working class in Cuba had, you know, the Communist Party existed, had a strong position in the trade unions, but they hadn't used that as a base to conduct a, a struggle to overthrow the vicious, corrupt, rotten Batista regime. But nevertheless, that regime had really decomposed by 1959. It was disintegrating. It had lost all credibility and support. Castro was conducting his struggle and his guerrilla army 
And they had, in a certain sense, a little bit of luck because under normal conditions, a guerrilla army would not be successful to be able to come to power where you have such a highly concentrated urban population with a working class. But nevertheless, because the regime had collapsed, the guerrilla movement gained credibility, it gained authority because it was the only thing that was conducting a struggle. The regime had collapsed. And the guerrillas were able to take power and they marched into Havana to be greeted by a massive general strike of the working class and they did take power. And by the way, the forces they took power with, I think they had a few thousand at the end, but it wasn't actually a mass force during they conducted the struggles. A very amusing anecdote to that during the struggle, written by an American journalist who visited Castro while he was conducting the guerrilla army and he's up in the mountains and he was interviewing and Castro only had a couple of dozen fighters around him at the time. So what he did was he sat down to interview this American journalist and he got these fighters to march around the camp and every time they pass by they go off change clothes and march again so this guy had the impression it was a, a, a big force but it was very little but anyway they uh, they managed to uh, step into the vacuum and came to power but they didn't have a clear idea for what sort of revolution they wanted to carry through Guevara always argued in favor of socialism Castro's original idea was come to power and then he looked towards America, towards having some sort of developed an industrialised, advanced capitalist economy, and then introduced at the same time reforms. But the reforms he introduced, particularly on the land and other areas, it drove the ruling elite bananas, and the American ruling class were not prepared to tolerate it. And then they began to impose sanctions and take sanctions against them. The Cubans responded and you had a tit-for-tat measure that it escalated. The revolutionary process was driven forward by the enthusiasm of the masses and it just propelled forward. And in effect, after a series of nationalisations, capitalism was just snuffed out. In a sense, not on the basis of a clear strategy of Castro, but on the basis of the dynamic of events. Now, that snuffing out of capitalism, and they then later proclaimed themselves in favour of socialism, that was later on, that was done, I think, in 61. And they were drawn into the orbit of the Soviet Union. And the idea, which is put forward, you know, by some capitalist commentators, that all of this was a plot organised by communists in Moscow. I mean, it's debunked by what happened in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union at a debate in their Central Committee that was released after Gorbachev came to power. And it was clear when they posed the question, they'd heard of Castro taking power, and the question they asked was, who the hell is Castro? They'd never heard of him. You know, it wasn't a plot from Moscow. But once they were there... They intervened and they succeeded in drawing them in to their orbit. Very favourable trade agreement was given, you know, and that benefited Cuba enormously. And through that, they were able to carry through incredible reforms even before the financial aid came from Russia, but they carried through incredible reforms. You know, they had a literacy campaign. They went into every workplace where, you know, workers were educated, taught how to read and write. When everybody could read and write, a red flag was raised outside the factories. They had an incredible degree of support for what they did, but it was never on the basis, unfortunately, of a conscious policy of workers' democracy and democratic workers' management of planning by the conscious intervention and rule by the working class through a system of elected councils with delegates subject to recall. They had the committees for the defence of the revolution, which were formed in the run-up to the Bay of Pigs assault, and they did have a base. They had an active participation, but they were not bodies that were fully in control and managing the situation. They were more of a transmission belt, really, to allow the government to carry out its policy. So in that sense, it was not a genuine form of a workers' democracy that was introduced. It was in a distorted form. Elements of repression were carried through and you had all of the features of a bureaucracy began to crystallise and develop over a whole period. I think it's interesting, so you touched on all, all those aspects. I think 
No doubt, those huge gains that were made by the working class and poor in Cuba, like you say, even despite the bureaucracy that really began to develop, acted as almost just, even it was never socialist, but it did give a glimpse about what could be possible. A different form of society, capitalism, which no doubt probably played a role, did play a role in terms of the radicalisation of Latin America, even still today, the sort of pink revolutions wave we saw in the 90s and 2000s. But like you say, I think workers' democracy, a key aspect, and... Leon Trotsky, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, always said, like, socialism needs democracy like a body needs oxygen. And if you don't have it, eventually it sort of suffocates and dies. And I think Castro, I think, said that the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, that I think it was 30 years this month or around this sort of time of year, 30 years since that collapsed. And Castro said that was like, I think, the sun being blocked out. Now, the Eastern Bloc, the USSR wasn't the sun to genuine socialists, for Trotskyists like ourselves, but like Cuba, it did give a glimpse of an alternative way of society, that though the initial Russian revolution, a workers' revolution, established socialism that was tragically pushed back by Stalin through literally a river of blood. But those regimes collapsed eventually in the late 80s, early 90s by the bureaucracy, the lack of democracy in effect made them so inefficient that they were unable to go on. Now, what sort of lessons do you think are there? Are there similarities, are there big differences from the collapse of Stalinism to what's going on in Cuba today? There are important points to Lenin, you know, in terms of the position. I mean, we have to register, you know, the Cuban revolution and the authority it had, you know, did have a big international impact. And it was in contrast because all of the, you know, reforms, all of the gains of the revolution particularly in Latin America, were in marked contrast with what was going on through the rest of the continent. No health service. You can get access to a doctor in the majority of countries unless you were part of the middle class. I mean, the same for education. I mean, it was a complete contrast, and therefore there was enormous sympathy there. Now, Castro made that point, really underlined the international consequences of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the former Stalinist states. Now, of course, we as Trotskyists, and the workers were in bitter opposition to the Stalinist bureaucracy. But what those systems did was they did give the idea that was a viable alternative to the capitalist system. And that was particularly the case in the neo-colonial world. It was seen as a counterweight to imperialism, which it was as well. And I mean, eventually, for the reasons you say, the bureaucracy, the whole thing became snarled up. I mean, it's completely false what you hear today in terms of the propaganda, the complete failure of the planned economy. The claim made by Khrushchev in the 1960s that he was going to bury America economically and overtake them. At that time, when he made that point in the United Nations speech, I mean, he enraged the West, but it wasn't so far from the truth. They were catching up, <laughs> and had they carried on on that economic trajectory, they would have overtaken the West, but they couldn't. And there were two things. One was the snarl up of the bureaucracy, bureaucratic methods, but then also they refused to switch to more modern means of production. And they just stuck with the old smokestack industries. Application of computers, etc., was not rolled out on a generalised basis. And, you know, productivity fell behind and they slipped back and eventually the whole system became absolutely snarled up and disintegrated. And you ended up with an attempt to reform it Gorbachev tried to reform it, you know, and his perestroika, his original idea was not to go back to capitalism, but to open it up. And if you read perestroika, there's no doubt about it. Gorbachev had gone back and read Lenin. He'd read the new economic policy and he thought he was going to apply a version of it. The problem was, you know, Lenin introduced that policy, which was a certain element of reintroduction of capitalist methods, because it was forced upon them. 
But they saw that as uh, buying time until the revolution develops internationally. Gorbachev never had that perspective at all, but nevertheless introduced these measures and the whole situation spun out of control. The protests that had taken place were not originally in the Soviet Union or elsewhere demanding a return to capitalism. But because there was not a conscious policy of what the alternative was to struggle for workers' democracy, it morphed into a sort of pro-capitalist restoration. And a bureaucracy in all of the countries, with the exception of the DDR in East Germany, in effect, they just looted the state and converted themselves into the modern-day oligarchs and, if you like, the capitalist class. So owners of Chelsea Football Club. Sure, go, 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 own go, go, Chelsea yeah. Football Club, <laughs> some of which own the independent newspaper. You know, I mean, they bought up half of London. I mean, it, that's where they went. In East Germany, the DDR, it was somewhat different. Because there, the whole of the DDR was simply just taken over by West Germany. <laughs> and the bureaucracy there was just pushed aside and got nothing out of it, <laughs> fundamentally. Now, that's got important lessons from the point of view of partly China, because the Chinese bureaucracy has tried to avoid that scenario of developing, and the Cubans as well. Now, they've been moving towards reintroduction measures of the market, certain capitalist measures, they dismantled some elements of the centralised planned economy and they've allowed an opening up. This is before the pandemic, etc., had taken grip. But they did it on a very limited basis and quite a controlled position. They had some joint ventures. They allowed foreign enterprises to come in, particularly the tourist sector, which was a key element of income for them. But it was quite limited. They allowed people to set up their own businesses. But they were cautious because they were frightened of the whole thing getting out of control. Now, the businesses they allowed to be set up, they were limited. You could set up your own business as a taxi driver, you know, or a food kiosk. And one or two other aspects as well were permitted. But generally, it wasn't pursued. And one of the reasons, undoubtedly, they would be more cautious in Cuba was their fear of what happened in East Germany. Because Cuba, you have this position of US imperialism on its borders. You have the Cuban exiles, the Miami gangsters, the worms, as they're called in Cuba. They come back, they're going to want to reclaim all of their property, etc. And the Cuban bureaucracy faces the possibility of facing the same fate as the East German bureaucracy has just been pushed aside unless they can sustain control of the situation. So they've moved more tentatively. Now, they've extended it since these recent protests. They brought new economic measures in. Now, some people on the left will say, ah, but this is only like what Lenin did with the new economic policy that they introduced. Now, there was a crucial difference. They took some pro-capitalist measures, particularly in agriculture, to buy time. They still maintained the decisive sectors of the economy in state hands, and they kept the state monopoly of foreign trade. But they always saw that as a temporary measure and put the emphasis on looking to the revolution to be spread. Now, the Cubans, with what they've done, they don't view it like that. And the new measures they've introduced, it's quite interesting to see the terminology they've used. They've used the terminology of bringing in more pro-capitalist measures as what they term to perfect socialism. So you're going to perfect socialism on the basis of reintroducing capitalism. Now, that gives an idea that they don't see this as a temporary measure until they're looking towards the international revolution. But it could be pushed and things have a momentum of their own. And the protests could gain steam. They won't necessarily start on the basis of being pro-capitalist, but it could take a twist in that direction. And you can have all sorts of developments. Miami Cubans come back. You could even have an element of a civil war situation or at least clashes breaking out. We have to see you know, how it develops. But that threat is definitely posed because of the dead end that they're in. And the crisis they now face in the health sector is going to complicate things enormously for the regime itself because that was probably the last real vestige of the gains of the revolution. And if that's in crisis, then you know, it's going to have a major effect. And there's a key element here is the generational change, both from the point of view of the leaders of the regime 
who don't have the same authority. You can't inherit authority. They've inherited their positions, but they're not inherited what the leaders of the revolution have done in terms of carrying through a revolution and thereby having the authority. But there's also a change with the youth. I mean, if you're 30 years old in Cuba, all you know is the country staggering from crisis to crisis. You have no memory of the gains of the revolution in reality. And that poses big dangers for the future in terms of the attitude of the youth, how they can be drawn and mesmerised to look to the lights of the West. You've had the regime try to contain the situation. They softened it later, but initially met the protest with quite brutal repression. It was not lost on people. Where there's been a massive petrol shortage in Cuba, which they blamed correctly in a sense on the US embargo, been no petrol for ambulances to take people to hospital, even for cemeteries to function. It's not cemeteries, crematoriums to function. And that, but nevertheless, petrol was found to deploy the police and other elements of the state machine to repress the demonstrators. And even since the demonstrations, you've now seen the introduction of a new law, the cyber terrorism law as they've termed it, where it makes it illegal to post offensive material, which is deemed as being offensive and will threaten public order and hurts the prestige of the country, whatever that means. So any criticism of the government fundamentally can be clamped down upon. And that's going to further alienate yeah. big sections of the youth in particular. I mean, we've touched on all sorts that I think it's been really good to go through both the nature, the background historically and what's touching upon there and a bit of like you just touched there, Tony, in terms of perspectives of what's coming forward. I mean... Just to sort of summarise, what programme and demands should socialists be putting forward in Cuba? What do we put forward as part of the Committee for Works International, both to defend the gains, well, what's left, but also to fight for the future of the Cuban Revolution? I mean, we would obviously, we have to start, you know, by emphasising we're completely against any steps towards capitalist restoration. And we want to defend and build upon all of the gains that were made by the revolution in 59-60. But how's that to be done? And therefore, we would argue it should not be done on the basis of a return to capitalism. It should be done on the basis of the introduction of a series of measures which would bring about a real form of workers' democracy, the establishment of genuine councils of workers of the local communities, of a delegates elected subject to recall, of no official to receive more than the average wage of a skilled worker, rotation of senior positions, the introduction of genuine free and democratic trade unions, of an emergency plan to be drawn up to deal and manage this crisis. And by the way, in answer to our critics who will say, well, we're just utopian, that we're ignoring the depth of the crisis, we recognise that even a genuine regime of workers' democracy would encounter enormous problems. It wouldn't immediately be possible to solve all of the issues. But you could begin to manage it and use that as a platform to spread an appeal for the revolution to be developed internationally. We have to argue for the opening up of a free press, for the right of people to organise political groupings and political parties on the basis that they agree they're not going to take up arms to fight for US imperialism or for the restoration of capitalism, but a genuine form of democracy should be opened up. A free access to the internet and other demands of that character should be done, central to the idea of an appeal to the working class of the rest of Latin America and of the United States to support them in their struggle to build a new society. And those opportunities have been lost. Earlier when I commented about the 1970s, what they did, you know, the spirit of internationalism that was there in the 60s and carried right through to the 70s, but they didn't understand how to complete the process or what class forces would lead the revolution. Even more recently, we've seen opportunities lost because you had a whole revolutionary wave. You had Chavez in Venezuela, you had Morales in Bolivia, you had Correa in Ecuador. Had in those countries, they completed the revolution, carried through 
the programme to abolish capitalism, they could have linked up with Cuba and at least taken the first steps to form a genuine democratic socialist federation to begin the process of planning the economies jointly, you know, which would have helped alleviate the problem, wouldn't have resolved everything, but there'd been a stronger block to stand up against the might of US imperialism and offer an appeal to the working class of the rest of the continent of the Americas. Now, unfortunately, that opportunity was lost. And one of the reasons it was lost, it was the leaders of the movement in those particular countries. But the Cubans were asserting pressure again, not to go too far, don't provoke reaction, hold the position back. Now, our critics on the left will say, oh, they did take that measure. They formed ALBA, which Chavez was formed, the Bolivarian trade area, but it wasn't. What it was was a trading area, nothing else. It was a trading agreement. It was not a proper plan to try and develop and integrate the economies and take the necessary steps to act in a joint manner. So those are what we say is necessary in order to fight to defend the gains of revolution and to defeat the threat of capitalist restoration. That's been brilliant, Tony. Thanks a lot. The Committee for Workers International and the Socialist Party, we've produced a whole host of material on historical aspects of Cuba and both current events, which will be linked on the podcast app or whatever device you use it for, and also links to two books we produced, one written by yourself, Tony, on the life of Che Guevara, another one on the Cuban Revolution itself, but we'll explain more as well in the latter bit of this episode. Cheers. That's brilliant, Tony. Thanks for listening today. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England Wales section for the Committee for Works International. Hope you enjoyed our discussion about Cuba and learnt loads. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. We heard from Tony Stormwell and my name is Lenny Shell. You can find out more if you've been intrigued, interested in finding out more about Cuba and what the Socialist Party has said over the years and what we're saying now. You can find further links in the notes in your podcast app. And if you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Now, Socialism the Podcast and the Socialist Party as well, we have no funding from big business, backers or adverts. All of our funding comes from our members and supporters, which allows us to maintain our political independence. If you are interested in maybe help fund this podcast, we'll be very grateful and thankful. You can make a regular donation or one-off payment at socialparty.org.uk forward slash donate. But even more importantly, if you've been interested keen now after hearing this podcast or a number of our podcasts to get involved and fight for socialism we want you to you can get in touch very easily and find out how you can become a supporter a member for the socialist party by going on socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join where you can read a little bit more and get in touch with us and send you details if you live outside england wales don't worry you can also join the fight for socialism wherever you are by contacting the Committee for Workers International, which is the international organisation, the Socialist Party we're part of, and by visiting socialistworld.net and following the various links. Hopefully you enjoyed today, and we'll see you back next time.